say c'est bon. Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm your host, Paige Donner. For the next half hour, I'll be presenting to you news, happenings, and personalities from Paris's extraordinary culinary world. So sit back and get ready to enjoy a full half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Like those French people do. Because it's all so good. In tribute to last month's announcement that both Burgundy and Champagne are now included as UNESCO World Heritage Cultural Sites, I'm running interviews on this topic that previously aired on this show and its predecessor, World of Wine. Each interview is with key proponents of these initiatives from each region. The first segment is a rebroadcast from my World of Wine show featuring two spokesmen from Champagne discussing their region's UNESCO World Heritage Site inclusion. That first aired in the fall of 2013. The second is with Guillaume d'Angerville, who worked closely with Aubert de Villene and the rest of their team to accomplish this welcomed news for Burgundy, namely their inclusion as a recognized World Heritage Cultural Site by UNESCO. Next, we'll be hearing a bit of a business slant to being a successful boulanger here in France. Cult baker Gontrain Cherrier His team speaks to us about exporting their bakery concept to Asia. Gontran Cherrier is a regular on the popular French TV show Best Baker of France on the M6 channel. And to round off, Alec Lebrano joins us again to talk about Shangri-La's gastronomic French dining restaurant L'Abeille. The Shangri-La, located in the 16th arrondissement, is one of Paris's exquisite palace hotels. So, stay with us for this latest episode of Good Food and Wine. With me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. This is The World of Wine, your weekly update on news from the world of wine in Paris. In 2014, two of France's celebrated wine regions may be on their way to joining the ranks of the exclusive international club that is UNESCO World Heritage Sites. They are Burgundy and Champagne. Both of these wine regions in France each produce famous namesake wines, wines that are often even more well-known than the regions from which they come. Champagne, for instance, is a term at times misused for sparkling wines. But in fact, Champagne is the region in France from which this particular wine originates, a wine that evolved over the past several hundred years to have characteristic bubbles. In other words, Champagne only comes from Champagne. Pierre-Yves Canjou, the Champagne industry's first regional ambassador, appointed in 2005, says, I think Champagne is very famous, but Champagne has wine. And this designation will, I hope, help people to want to come in Champagne and to see really the Champagne vineyard. Not only drinking Champagne, but discovering Champagne vineyard, Champagne villages, Champagne cities as Reims or Epernay. I hope more and more people all over the world will come 
to discover the region. The same rich cultural history is true of Burgundy. Burgundian wines have a heritage going back thousands of years. The Burgundy coat is the only vineyard in the world to have constantly upheld the identity of its climas over some 2,000 years. This notion of climas, specific to Burgundy, designates each plot or group of plot of vines which have been known under the same name for several centuries. In both Burgundy and Champagne, each wine region evidences a work created together by man and nature and is a worldwide model of terroir. Moreover, the spirit of the place and the human work carried out are created on a durable basis. The spokesperson for the CIVC in Champagne explains it this way. My name is Thibault Le Mayou. I'm the communications director of Comité Champagne, known as Champagne Bureau all over the world. The Champagne region is applying to the UNESCO World Heritage as a cultural landscape. This means that it's not a beauty contest. It's not about the landscape itself. It's about the interaction between nature, the original landscape, and mankind over the centuries. And Kenju points out... The first uh, reason of this designation is to consider Champagne Vineyard as really something exceptional in the world, perhaps as a special region and, I don't know, uh, the Grand Canyon or something like that. In Burgundy, it is the climas that the region is submitting for UNESCO World Heritage candidacy. In Champagne, it is the Coteau, Maison et Cave de Champagne. The name of the candidacy is Coteau, Maison et Cave de Champagne, which means the vineyards, the houses and buildings, and of course the historical landmarks, and the cellars and the chalk cellars called the Crayère in Reims as well. However, the candidacy is not about champagne wines or champagne vineyards, it's about the whole winemaking region as an economical, social, historical ecosystem. So the 319 villages are all included within the candidacy. The first step towards the UNESCO designation is for France to choose their two candidates to put forward to the international organization. This year, both Champagne and Burgundy are crossing their fingers that 2014 will be their year to represent France for this prestigious designation. Final inclusion would allow them to join the ranks of the other UNESCO World Heritage Wine Regions, which are Saint-Emilion, Tocage, the Douro, and Levaux. The designation qualifies the site as being unique in the world, of exceptional and universal value, the existence and transmission of which are valuable for humanity. Get with the imagination. I'll get there with the imagination. Next up, we'll be hearing their perspective from Burgundy. Here at the Collège de Bernardin in uh, Paris's uh, heart of the Latin Quarter, sitting with the uh, Deputy President, Guillaume Dangerville, Monsieur Guillaume Dangerville. And uh, he's the Deputy President of the Climat de Bourgogne. And uh, what's so relevant about this is that it's being decided uh, right now uh, their World Heritage, their UNESCO World Heritage candidacy. So when, you, when your team put forward the dossier to the UNESCO, you chose the category of culture. Um, can you please explain why um, you chose that category and what the relevance of that is? Sure, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, we, we decided to apply as a cultural site uh, and the reason for this is because we want to emphasize that Burgundy is all about interaction between nature and man. 
you know, it's not just the landscape. The landscape is obviously very beautiful in Burgundy, but the history of, of Burgundy and the winemaking model that we have built there is the story of man interacting with that nature. Um, nowhere else in the world has man been so precise in identifying an agricultural production, a wine, to the place where the wine is actually produced. So what we are talking about, the climat de Bourgogne, as you mentioned them, what we are talking about here is a mosaic of very tiny plots of land, parcels of land, which are very clearly identified and named and have been named for a thousand years for most of them. And today, each of those specific plots of land produces a specific wine that bears a specific name. And this is what we are trying to share with the world. We're not trying to share just our landscape, which is beautiful, but we need to share also what is behind this, the cultural uh, aspect of it, the Burgundy culture, uh, 2,000 years of history, because the first vineyard was found in our area uh, dated 100 years post-Jesus Christ, so almost 2,000 years ago. And this iterative process that took over you know, over a thousand years for sure, to identify each piece of land with a specific wine. So not just the landscape, but the culture behind the landscape and interaction between man, man and nature. Now, your team, once again, your, your team, the Climat Bourgogne, um, you arranged this fabulous conference that's been taking place the last two days here, the heritage value of terroir-based economies as model of human development. And it's become very clear um, what a UNESCO World Heritage designation can bring to a territory such as a region such as Burgundy or the Colombian um, coffee growers region, um, the Alang Alang region in the Comores. Uh, but what, what does the designation of World Heritage Cultural Site, World Cultural Heritage Site, UNESCO, it, it, when it's designated to, to Burgundy, what does it bring to the world? Well, you know, the, the whole purpose of the World Heritage List is, is to protect sites, the destruction of which would be a loss to humanity. Okay? The outstanding universal value, that's the definition by UNESCO of outstanding universal value. If that piece of land, Burgundy, was to be damaged or destroyed, it would be a loss to humanity as a whole. And the whole purpose of our, of our you know, long search towards the World Heritage List is precisely because we Burgundians would like to share with the rest of the world not only our landscape, like I said earlier, but also our culture, our history, our winemaking model. We're very keen on that and we want, because perhaps also because wine is such a convivial product, uh, we would like to share this with the rest of the world. And it's, very, it's a very complex region to understand because of those specificities, the very small uh, pieces of land that produce separate wines. So it needs work to understand. And we want um, the World Heritage List to help us uh, share that with the rest of the world. And of course, as part of our commitment to UNESCO, we will indeed uh, make sure that, that we uh, share our knowledge with, with foreigners, with, with tourists that will come to the region. And we intend to organize special areas, places, 
buildings where people will, will be taught how Burgundy works and how the winemaking model of Burgundy can be applied. And that's what we intend to share with the rest of the world. And of course, by the way, you should know that Burgundy today already is a winemaking model for other wine regions of the world. And today the purpose of this symposium is also to say that not only is, is wine uh, a, a product that typically can be terroir-based, but also there are other uh, agricultural productions that share the same challenges and the same successes and also the same threats uh, as Burgundy does. And we, we, you, you, you chose uh, to speak about coffee, there's rice, there's tea, uh, uh, all of those uh, terroir-based agricultural productions share the same challenges and uh, successes. Next, Alec Lebrano talks to us about L'Abeille, the Palace Hotel, Shangri-La's gastronomic French restaurant. So L'Abeille is the gem of the newly designated Palace Hotel, Shangri-La. Tell us a little bit about that. There's a new chef there. There is a new chef. Um, Christophe Moray started there a couple of months ago. Christophe was previously, he's a very distinguished cook. Um, he was trained by Ducasse. Uh, most recently, he was at La Serre, and before that, he cooked at the at restaurant Alain Ducasse at the Plaza Athénée. Um, and now he's been brought over to L'Abeille. Um, and the name, of course, uh, L'Abeille means the bee in English, and it's a reference to the fact that the Shangri-La, the building of the Shangri-La was originally um, the palace built by the, I think it was the brother-in-law of Napoleon. Have they changed the decor at all, or is it just the menu? Has the whole kitchen been revamped? Um, no, the decor has pretty much stayed the same. Um, but it's what's fascinating every once in a while with the chef change. I, I felt I've known Christophe uh, Moret's cooking for many years. He's an incredibly talented chef. This was if you, if you hadn't told me that it was Christophe Moret, I would never I would never have guessed that this was his food. I mean, it is light. Um, incredibly imaginative. I mean, it's almost luminescent. The I had a starter that was absolutely extraordinary of uh, sea urchin um, and crab and crab meat on a um, uh, and caviar on a crab meat flan, which is one of the most beautiful things I've eaten in, in many many years. I mean, it's just it was exactly what one wanted to start a meal with on that first night of early night of spring like weather. Um, but the food was so delicate and intricate, and, and the flavor patterns were so elegantly stitched um, that I was surprised because Christophe previously has been what I would say is kind of a, a very masculine cooking style, and this is so delicate and so fine, and it was exciting to discover his, that he has other uh, deeper range. Um, and I also think that he's been uh, set free at the uh, Shangri-La. The Shangri-La, I mean, it's a... Uh, as you said, Paige, it's a, a um, kid glove luxury hotel. So he has a 
substantial budget to buy the best products in the city. The dining room staff is charming and incredibly alert. Um, and it's just a pretty spectacular experience. You know, as we've talked about before, when you go out for an expensive meal, you do not want to make a mistake because it's an investment. And um, so I went to the L'Abbaye uh, with great curiosity because people ask me so often, where should we go for a special meal in Paris? Um, I would unhesitatingly send people to L'Abbaye. It's a charming, charming restaurant. It's good value for the money, too. Is it even necessary to ask what the price range is, or is it like if you have to ask, you kind of shouldn't really go there? <laughs> it's not as, I mean, I'd say in the world of haute cuisine, as you and I know, um, depending on what you drink, it's very easy to spend uh, 400 euros a person, which is a lot of money, no matter how you, how, how you splice it out. Um, at La Baie, you can spend maybe, you can have a very nice meal for about 200 euros a person, which again is not cheap. Um, but the, that experience, I mean, top of the mountain haute cuisine dining is not going to be cheap. There's a huge amount of labor that goes into creating this food and serving it with elegance and grace. Um, so within the context of haute cuisine dining in Paris, La Baie is actually very good value for the money. Any attempt at, at a rating, or is it just kind of out of the out of the scope of any sort of rating? I there there I would give Labbe a solid A minus. I think Christophe is getting off to a brilliant start. The other thing I'd mention specifically, there's a new pastry chef there, and there's a dessert that you shouldn't miss, which is a honeycomb like um, pastry filled with honeycomb. Again, a reference to the Napoleonic symbol, which is the bee. Um, and it is one of the most beautiful, visually beautiful and delicious desserts I've eaten in Paris in a long time. It comes to the table covered with little um, transparent gilded sugar bees. It's a pretty spectacular look, way to end a meal. Well, I want to see a picture of that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alec. You're very welcome. You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine with me, your host, Paige Donner. Now, switching to our next topic, the business of bakeries. Luc Bajot and Robin Dublangy speak to us about taking Baker Gontrain Cherrier's concept bakeries into the Far East and doing so very successfully. So I'm standing here at the very first uh, bakery of superstar baker Gontrain Cherrier. And we're right on Rue Kolenka, La Marque Kolenka, Rue Kolenka, in the 18th arrondissement, which is just uh, in the shadows of the Butte Montmartre and the, this, this beautiful area. And I have with me the business partner of Gontran Cherrier, Luc Bajot. Can you just say a couple words, say, say hello to us? <laughs> Hi, I'm, uh, my name is Luc Bajot. I'm uh, Gontran's uh, business partner for the last uh, four years. And, uh, have uh, participated to our first bakery in Rue Colinco and uh, since then we we uh, expanded quite a lot in, in France but most of it in uh, Asia, in Singapore, Japan, Korea, Australia and, uh, and China. Well we're going to hear a lot more about that expansion in just a, a moment. Um, we have also with us the operations manager Robin Dublangy. So Robin say hello and, and tell us just a little a couple words about yourself. 
Well, so hello, uh, my name is Robin uh, Robin de Blanger in French, and uh, so I'm the operations manager. I joined the team uh, six months ago. I, um, I also worked for Gontran and Luc uh, two years ago in uh, Singapore, where I first met them. And uh, well, actually, I majored in uh, international business and uh, international marketing, so, uh, and I'm with them, helping them to develop the business. Yeah. Now, you know, it's very interesting to watch the evolution. This bakery here, this main, the, your very first one, opened just four years ago. And now you're telling me that you're uh, just in the middle of opening up the 20th bakery worldwide. Tell us a little bit about that expansion. And then also, how did you come to, to the business? I've, I've actually lived uh, 20 years in Hong Kong. So I've, I've got, uh, kind of had uh, quite a lot of contacts in Asia. And I joined Gontran uh, actually, in fact, to initially to develop Asia once we started our first bakery. So we, once we opened Colincourt, uh, we use it like a, as a platform to show people what we were doing. And then people came to see us. And I had contacts in Singapore, so we opened our first bakery in Singapore. And that was the first of many, because actually afterwards uh, our Japanese partner went to see uh, Singapore and opened as well, and then we uh, opened in uh, Korea. So because of my background of 20 years in Asia, we are very keen to open in Asia, and also we saw the very large potential of Asian people starting to change their, uh, their habits, uh, their heating habits, and they started to eat a lot of bread and started to enjoy a lot of uh, bakery, pastry. Actually, in fact, today we're making about 12,000 croissants per day in Japan. So it's, uh, we are very well known for the quality of our product. And Asian people have changed uh, their habits. So now they have breakfast, they have bread, they have uh, pastry and uh, so sandwiches, which it wasn't the case about 10 years ago. So it, there's a lot of potential still in Asia. That's fascinating. And Robin, too, now you bring your experience of having worked in, in Asia yourself, in Singapore, to the business. Um, did you notice any kind of change in eating habits uh, when you were in Singapore? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, the, the Asian people, they don't eat the, that much bread. So first of all, because in France, we eat bread on a daily basis. But there, they don't eat bread on a daily basis. And um, they also... so. There is mostly um, uh, on the on the having here. I mean, they eat and they spend time in, the, in our bakeries and they they eat their croissant with uh, cutleries and everything. Here in France, it's more about takeaway. We take we we take a pastry and we take it. So it's um, it's a really different the way they they eat our products and the way they consume. Uh, it's pretty much different. Yeah, indeed. Well, you know, one of the things that really drew me to, to your bakery and, and to find out a little bit more about Gontran Cherrier as a baker is the fact that you have um, miso, miso bread and you have squid ink bread. Now, is that something that developed in Asia or is that something that you developed here and took to Asia? I'll, I'll go back to you, Robin, and then I'll follow to, to Luke. Well, um, actually, Gontran, he, he, this, is, this is exactly what... Um, what uh, our positioning is, is all about because the Gontran is not only about doing a, a, a French traditional bakery, it's about having a French tra traditional bakery mixed and combined with some uh, international flavors. So when Gontran goes abroad, he, he likes to take back to, to take back home some, and try some new combinations and everything. So basically, he brought back the miso from Japan, he brought back the shizo and, uh, and all, all of different uh, flavors, yeah. many spices, yes. 
So, so what, what kind of spices, like what, what, other, what other things, and, and did you have any say in this, or is that all just the, the baker's creativity? Or? No, no, I didn't have any say into that. I mean, this, this is just, uh, I mean, Gontran's background, even we, before we started uh, this first bakery, was traveling a lot in uh, Russia. He stayed a few, uh, few months in Russia and elsewhere. So he has always had like this uh, curiosity about, uh, about you know, going abroad and finding new tastes, new savors. And, uh, and new spices. So, uh, as Robin said, it was like he always wants to try a new, new, new taste. And the advantage of now that we have bakeries in Korea and Japan is that he can actually spend. He spends there about you know three, three, four. He goes there three or four times a year, and stays there and study new, new product and new uh, assembly of product. And we all benefit from that. And uh, all, all the bakeries around the world, when you go uh, in, in Singapore, you can maybe taste a product from Japan or, or some product from Korea. And also the fact that he does this show on M6, you know, he does this Meilleur Boulangerie de France that, uh, that uh, shows on TV every day. I mean, uh, and he also has even different tastes in France that he can bring to our bakery as well. So we have international taste and we have also different French tastes from all over France because of this show. Uh, so it's you know we always try to bring curiosity to our customer. Every time, every day they come, they say, "Oh, what shall I try? What's new product?" And then they're always satisfied with the new taste. <laughs> you know, you, with, there's kind of a, a bit of a, of a of a thrust here domestically to to reinvigorate French cuisine on an on an international scale on an international screen. Now you guys are already doing it and you've been doing it now for four years and and you're just opening up uh, another location in China this this year in, in, in Shanghai. So how how do you find, I mean obviously your success speaks for itself, but how do you find the receptivity of, of French baked goods and maybe even French cuisine uh, in, in Asia? I mean can you speak to that even more? Kind of what I'm going after is, you know, the the Ministry of Tourism is all about like gastro diplomacy now, like you know, um, sort of exporting even more French cuisine and making it more accessible to people who. I, I, I think I think basically, it's it's the fact that Asian people, uh, when I came in Asia like 10, 15 years ago, there were nobody was traveling. Now you have Asian people all over the world that taste that goes to restaurant. They have money also. They have they can spend money in two restaurants and they be, they're becoming refined and that's a new tendency so when any Asian people come to uh, to Europe or to the US they will look for new restaurant they will look for new taste and they, their curiosity and their purchasing power is increasing day by day so actually when they come back home they want to see that again uh, because they they're now traveling see what cuisine they, there is all around the world and the, I mean there's you know beautiful cuisine now and so when they come back home, they just want to see the same. They're becoming really tough on, on uh, quality, on presentation, and because they, they you know, they, they, they're travelers like everyone now, so. Oh, that's great. I, Robin, I see you nodding your head. Did you, did you have something to add? No, I mean, he's, what he's saying is absolutely right. I mean, they are, they are traveling and they're getting more and more used to uh, good cuisine and good, uh, uh, good, bakery, good bakeries, and they want to have uh, the good croissant. Uh, at home, and uh, I can see that on the social networks every day. You know, on Instagram we have uh, like 10,000, more than 10,000 uh, posts on Instagram because each and every day we have 20, 30s coming. Oh my God, it's so good, it's so good, and it it, it tastes like France. You know, and this is what they want. They want to taste France at home. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And they can make, and uh, as I said, I mean, they can make a difference now 
between a good croissant and a bad croissant. Uh, so, you know, uh, they, they would go to another bakery and say, no, I don't like this. We're talking about Asia. Like when I was in Asia 15 years ago, there was no bakery, you know, so very little. And now they go to uh, their favorite bakeries because one has croissant, one has good baguette and so on. So they, you know, they, they're becoming French people abroad, you know. <laughs> they have good taste now, huh? <laughs> they know what's good. Well, I want to thank you both, Robin and Luke. I want to thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine. I'm your host and producer, Paige Donner. And a grand merci to the Good Food and Wine team. Paris, Good Food and Wine is brought to you in part by the generous support of FUSAC, Paris's English language website and community resource since 1988. Visit www.fusac.fr And the show is also brought to you by the support of Paris Food and Wine. Visit us at parisfoodandwine.net Thanks for joining us for this half hour of Paris Good Food and Wine. Myself, Paige Donner, and the rest of the team look forward to seeing you again here for the next episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine. Because it's so, so, so good.